Hello, and welcome to this special introductory episode to our second season of Horror Nerds at Church. My name is Pace Warfield May, and I am one of the co-hosts, the other being Joe Romulo. Before we get into today's episode, I wanted to give you all a little update about season two of the podcast, as well as some information about today's episode. First, season two officially launches tomorrow, Friday the 13th of August, and as we did with season one, we'll be covering an entire horror franchise this season. Given that our release date for the first film is Friday the 13th, if you guess that the horror franchise you'll be covering is Friday the 13th, you would absolutely be correct. But unlike in season one, where we went through the entire Halloween franchise in one block, followed by a few one-off films, we decided to mix things up this season a little bit. We will still be doing a variety of one-off films, including a few that are family-friendly for our listeners who are not as into horror. But how it will work is we'll do two episodes on films from the Friday the 13th franchise, followed by a one-off, then two more Friday films, and so on. So for the month of August, what this will look like is episode one will be on the original Friday the 13th and will come out tomorrow. Episode two will be on Friday the 13th part two and will come out on August 19th. Episode three, we will go cross country to Santa Carla for a one-off episode on the 1987 film The Lost Boys, and that will come out August 26th. Then episode four, we will return to um, Crystal Lake for Friday the 13th, part three, 3D, and so on. We will do our best to announce the entire month's slate of films on the first episode of every month to give everyone a heads up of what to expect. We hope you like this format. Definitely reach out to us and let us know what you think of it. We're trying it a little bit different just to mix things up a little bit. So if you don't like Friday the 13th, you don't have to wait um 12 weeks <laughs> to get to listen to our podcast um but you'll have some other films mixed in there too uh okay so now for this episode this episode is an interview with special guest richard Lindsay, the author of the book hollywood biblical epics camp spectacle and queer style from the silent era to the modern day Richard Lindsay is also the co-editor of poptheology.com with research interests in the crossover between theology and pop culture Today's conversation begins with talking about Richard's background before going into a broad conversation about theology and pop culture and how they play off of each other quite a bit through all film genres, not just horror, before we take a deep dive into horror and theology, and in particular, the 1973 film The Exorcist. We hope you enjoyed this interview with Richard Lindsay as much as we enjoyed having him on our show. A huge special thank you to Richard Lindsay for agreeing to be our first guest. Two other quick notes. First, Richard and Joe refer to a few schools by their acronyms. The GTU is the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley, California, and DSPT is the Dominican School of Philosophy and Theology, also located in Berkeley, California. And finally, some content warnings for this episode. There is talk about menstruation and other bodily functions in relation to the Exorcist film, and talk about trauma and spiritual warfare language and a conversion camp mentioned toward the end of the episode. And now, without further ado, our interview with Richard Lindsay. Greetings. You are listening to Horror Nerds at Church, a podcast where we take a deep dive into a horror film and talk about what it can teach us about God, the Bible, and each other. My name is Joe. Um, yeah, and I'm Pace. 
So this is a special episode, special episode, like this is full house on Tuesdays <laughs> at ABC. <laughs> um, I am excited. Today's episode is super special. We have with us Dr. Richard Lindsay, um, who uh, teaches and got his PhD at the Graduate Theological Union. Uh, Richard, are your pronouns he, him? Or... Yes. Okay, great. Um yeah, and so uh, uh, I met Dr. Lindsay when I took three of his classes, four. I don't, I don't even remember anymore. Um, so the story. That's you're definitely one of my my biggest repeat customers. You know, when I saw when I saw <laughs> your class advertised, um, at first I saw the the flyers um, on campus, and then I read the class descriptions. Um, the first thing that came to mind was I didn't know there was any sort of pop culture and theology intersectional study uh, that existed, let alone at the GTU. But you are at the forefront of all of that. And it's just like, it's just so amazing. Um, and so it is my honor to welcome Dr. Richard Lindsay to the show. Hi, Richard. Hey, good to see you all. Good to be with you all. Good to uh, whatever we're doing here. It's good to be here. <laughs> What are we doing here, Pace? I constantly ask myself that every week. Yeah, yeah. Well, this, as Joe said, this is a special episode. So, Seriously speaking, of course, um, one of the many things you do in your very busy schedule is that you are, in fact, a professor of public speaking at USF. Isn't that right? Yes. Yeah. So, and that's great. And you are ordained with the PCUSA as well? I am not ordained. Oh, okay. Sorry. I don't, for some reason, I thought you were a pastor because you talk about working in the church so much in class. I do. Uh, that um, you know, I came along right during the big conflicts over LGBTQ pastors and um, took a, took part quite a bit in the LGBTQ movement within the Presbyterian Church USA. But um, sort of like I got to the point where, all right, there was a time when I would have gone through with ordination, but they didn't want me at that time and. So now they say they want me, but it's like, well, you know, I'm 46 and I have a life. <laughs> uh, yeah, that ordination track um, is pretty lengthy. I, I went through it myself. Uh, I know you've heard this story before when I give my intros during class. But yeah, at one point I was on the ordination track with the PCUSA. And then, you know, life just showed me that there are different things that are happening. And like you, Richard, yes, I was thinking to myself, you know, I ain't getting any younger. <laughs> Do I really want to spend my years um, uh, checking all of these boxes to become a pastor? But uh, how did you end up? In theological studies, Richard, is it because of your time in the church? Yeah, I mean, I grew up, I grew up um, Presbyterian, and I was part of that my whole life. Um, and, you know, I, I guess I would just say, you know, I started out with, uh, with the intention of studying to become a pastor, um, did my seminary studies at Yale Divinity School, uh, and I graduated from there in 2004. And from there, I went on to do activist work with the um, national, it's now the National LGBTQ Task Force uh, with their Religious Leadership Roundtable, and then also doing some work with Soul Force and with That All May Freely Serve and the, and the Presbyterians. And I guess I would just say it's something that was always, uh, you know, it was always something that was part of my life. 
I would say definitely coming out as gay and trying to figure that out and trying to put those pieces together with uh, being a Christian, being a person of faith, definitely led to, you know, wanting to go deeper and wanting to study more and find out more. And fortunately had some really good role models in my undergrad when I was at University of Louisville. And then uh, once, you know, once you kind of get into that track within sort of liberal Christianity, you sort of find those, uh, those, those professors and those teachers and those sources that kind of help you put those pieces together. Absolutely. And uh, it really helps to have professors and really a school setting where you, you feel seen. And I'm sure that once you felt seen, you felt empowered to do the kinds of studies that you wanted to do as a full version of yourself. Uh, you call Kentucky home? <laughs> My, um, uh, there's a song about that, isn't there? Um... Is there? Don't <laughs> sing it. We, we're, we're, we're still a starter podcast. We can't afford the copyright fee. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, pretty sure it's public, I'm pretty sure it's public uh, domain now. But um, Oh, okay. But it, but it does have racist undertones, so we won't go into that. Um, uh, so yeah. I guess I would say is that, um, yeah, uh, grew up in Kentucky, um, as everyone from Northern Kentucky says, I grew up in Northern Kentucky, which is part of the greater Cincinnati area. And so we like to do, cause we like to separate ourselves <laughs> from the rest of the state and, you know, all of those kind of hillbillies and, you know, rural people. And, uh, which is ridiculous because then once you move away from there, you realize it's not that different from the state it's it's sort of like being from maryland and saying oh yes but i'm from the greater dc area you know <laughs> you're still from maryland that's true that's true ace lives in dc so that does not apply to me i am actually in the district <laughs> okay there you go yeah yeah pace <laughs> and matt are over there in the district where which is actually where i spent a lot of my teenage years growing up in the greater suburban Maryland area, <laughs> quote, unquote. <laughs> um, but what, what one of the things we really want to know, Richard, is how did you end up at the intersection of theology and pop culture? I, I swear, like, I, I want to repeat again what I said in the beginning, because that bears repeating. That's a field of study I never would have thought of. And when I saw that it existed here at the GTU and that you were the one who was doing it, I was like, there's this one guy at the GTU who's doing this cool, uh, teaching these cool classes. And this is like his research. And how did you end up in this space? Well, it's interesting. Like I came to GTU with uh, initially with the thought that I might do um, that I might do preaching and uh, or homiletics and I was but I was doing it in a very interdisciplinary way um, but then I um, I started taking courses and I and I took a course of the film course which was taught by Father Michael Morris um, at, oh. at uh, the Dominican school and yeah. it was just like he and I just clicked I mean it just immediately we got on with each other um, and I did my first paper for his class on um, on camp in uh, camp and queer subtext in the Ten Commandments, and fascinating. That, and at that point, I was like, "This is my dissertation," you know. And it's very rare to figure out your dissertation like your first semester what that's going to be. But I was like, "This is totally got to be my dissertation." And so I got more and more into. I was like, "Okay, so this has." A, I'm fascinated more and more by this intersection of popular culture and religion. 
And so I started just taking whatever cultural studies stuff I could take combined with, uh, you know, like theologies of culture. Mm -hmm. um, there was some of that stuff. Um, interestingly, a lot of that comes came through some of the Catholic seminaries because Protestants have a little bit harder time with this. It seems to me that's really my, that's my opinion. Interesting. Well, you know, historically the Catholic Church has always been meddling in show business, right? There were the whole movie codes that they, oh, yeah. So it's it's they have this bizarre relationship where they love and hate <laughs> movies. Uh, 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 on the one hand, um, uh, being aware of movies and the whole industry is a way for the Catholic Church to kind of put itself out there. On the other hand, like this is just another way for them to control control things, right? By saying, yeah, movies are okay, you know, just don't show boob and all of this kind of stuff. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm sort of not surprised that there's some Catholic influence there. Could you talk a little more about Father Michael, Michael Morris? Uh, did I say his name right? Michael Morris? Yeah, yeah you've... you've mentioned him a couple of times in class uh, as you said he taught at the dominican school here at the gtu um and so was he doing specifically pop culture and theology stuff at the time that you met him yeah i mean his his background is in art and religion and so he, it's just that he particularly was drawn to modern and contemporary art forms uh, particularly liked, he, he really loved stuff that was sort of um, turn of the century, turn of the 19th century, and sort of stuff that might have even been called like the, like the decadence of the decadence mm -hmm. era. Uh, that was what he did some of his studies on. And then uh, he was a film lover from the time he was very young um, yeah. and grew, growing up in Southern California. And wow. um, he passed away, by the way, in, in 2016 uh, mm. of cancer. Uh, but he was just somebody who brought so much life to, you know, the films that we watched in class and the films we discussed yeah. in class. He collected ephemera, uh, movie movie posters and ephemera. And in fact, one of his former students and I, along with uh, Father Chris Rentz at DSPT, are working on trying to catalog everything that he everything that he collected. That's he amazing. has something like 800 pieces of movie ephemera. Uh, including, oh. um, including, you know, at least a hundred or so first-class uh, movie posters, um, all of of you know religious epics and religious films. So, uh, who who possesses all of Father Michael's ephemera as of right now? It's part of a, there's a there's a nonprofit organization that's um, that's affiliated with DSPT called the mm -hmm. Blackfriars Gallery. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so what we're doing right now is we're actually starting to try to create descriptions of each of the movie posters, create some history for it. The catalog is going to be online. And then uh, the hope is that we'll actually start creating some media stuff to go with it so that when they send out these posters to various galleries or universities or whatever, that there will be that there might be like a podcast that goes with it. And so that there would be we kind of capture some of his teaching around movies and films and, uh, you know, um, and mm -hmm. just kind of capture his his whole um, the Catholic word is charism. <laughs> that is the word for it. Yeah. So would you be involved with this podcast? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm definitely involved with this. 
uh, it's 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 like a whole big deal. I mean, we're like we're, we're like doing some fundraising and stuff like that. It's kind of like um, we're hoping to make it like a real professional um, kind of thing. My question was. Uh... In the last pop culture class I took from you, uh, the 60s were, was one of your focuses that you had taught the class. And so uh, the religious world, especially Christianity, was all over the map at that time, right? You had the Jesus freaks who identified as Christian, but, you know, were hopping around Golden Gate Park <laughs> and things like that, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. So like the Jesus people. Yeah, they were sort yeah. of like these hippies who, you know, I mean, like the one of them in that documentary we watched, it was like, uh, you know, I took a tab of acid, I lay down. And when I got up, I was a Christian. You know, I mean, it's like <laughs> these people were out there. It was like Jesus was their drug. And they were, but that's where a lot of the kind of modern sort of Christian culture, let's say like, like evangelical popular culture really came from sort of grew out of that Jesus people movement. I mean, they brought rock and roll into the church. I mean, it's that simple. Isn't that ironic? I yeah. mean, the very things that they now denounce are actually at their origin. Well, I mean, they're 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 fine with rock and roll as long as it's Christian rock and roll. <laughs> you know, as long as it has it has Jesus Jesus Jesus. You know, you just take any love song and put Jesus in there instead of uh <laughs> instead of uh, uh, the other person. So. Uh, uh, pace are you a fan of this Christian rock and roll? Pace <laughs> does not listen to Christian rock and roll. <laughs> I am lucky that my spouse is a church musician who is a very talented organist and pianist and harpsichordist even and does all sorts of sacred music and secular music and all this stuff like performing all around the DC area. So I get I get high quality music um a diverse a, a diversity of high quality music uh, my sister's also a flautist and stuff so i don't want to turn my nose up to any type of music but i will say that some of the what, what i guess we would call contemporary christian more rock music is very very theologically shallow sounds very similar and just is not my type of music but for the people who enjoy it power to you and and like richard was saying it seems like i think that a lot of the their demographic seems to be uh white boomers and gen xers a little bit like crossover there it's not really reaching the youths of today or reaching communities of color in the way that i think a lot of uh, people who claim to really support it uh mm. tend to say it does but i don't think it does um i would tend to agree with that yeah I guess at one time it, it, it did, and that moment in time is over. <laughs> I, uh, Pace, question for you. Did you uh, ever grow up watching any of the, you know, the old school biblical epics? You know, Ten yeah. Commandments, stuff like that. Yeah, you, yeah. I, it, it was part of my upbringing as well. I mean, uh you know, the Ten Commandments would come on ABC every Easter. And uh, there are a couple of others that uh, my dad would pull up every now and then. My mom wasn't my mom wasn't into it. And she said outright, no, that's cheesy. And if I want to go to church, I'll go to church. <laughs> um, but so I would watch it with my dad just to spend time with my dad. And even before I really knew that I was gay... <laughs> 
there was just something about that movie, those movies that screamed to me, all the men are beautiful. <laughs> and uh, so, Richard, when you took an interest in uh, that genre of of movies, were, were you also picking up on that as an area of academic interest? Like, why are these biblical epics kind of gay? <laughs> Yes, that was pretty much the point. Uh, that was pretty much the whole entire point of my dissertation. Are these biblical epics kind of gay? Um, and in fact, and in fact, I have a book. Um, I'll put it up for that. Um, Hollywood biblical epics, camp spectacle and queer style from the silent era to the modern day. A suitably long academic colon title, but um, you know, highly recommend. Um, I've I've yeah. I've read it. I may be biased though. <laughs> Yeah, I, you know, there's always an element of camp and mm-hmm. uh, there's always an element of, you know, there's something that in, in when you're doing a biblical epic film, it's like, first of all, you're putting you're putting men in robes. OK, and the moment <laughs> you do that, you've crossed you've crossed the line. <laughs> yes. And then and then once you've got, you know, Charlton Heston in a robe and you've got. <laughs> You've got Yul Brenner and that, oh my God, that um, right. that Pharaoh outfit. He was like, right. he was, wow, he was a hunk of man. <laughs> I mean, um, and then and then the villains were often very fey and very effeminate. And, uh, you know, I mean, people forget, but Vincent Price is in that one, in the Ten Commandments as the, as the, uh, the slave master. And... Uh, and you know what was funny was that when they did Exodus Gods and Kings, um, they had this character in there. And it's like, what is this guy doing there? He's played by Ben Mendelsohn, who's a great character actor. He's been in some of the Star Wars films, mm-hmm. stuff like that. Or he was in, uh, uh, but Rogue One is the movie, right? That is yeah, the- I believe it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. So he played, that, he played the main engineer of the Death Star in that. Okay. Yeah, I think I'm remembering him now. Actually, yeah. yeah. So of course he he plays he tends to play these very officious characters, and he was the main guy building the Pharaoh's city. And when uh, when Christian Bale as Moses goes, I mean, there's all kinds of problems with this movie, but I mean, when when, <laughs> when he goes to see him, it's like the guy's wearing makeup, and he's got you know, he's got like all of these servants around him, and he's got this purple robe on. And then finally, he's he's just like gives Christian Bale this like very thirsty look, and it's kind <laughs> of like, um, is there anything else I can do for you? And just kind of looks him up and down, and I was like, oh, thank God, my my thesis is still intact. You know? <laughs> it's like you have a solid argument. I have a solid argument, and it hasn't changed. Nothing has changed since the 1950s. So. So one thing I wanted to ask uh, Richard, and um, uh, this is probably going to lead into a discussion about camp. I know Pace wants to talk about that, is in covering, uh, you know, these these uh, biblical epics, were you were you considering at all that? these these same movies where there is a lot of camp where it's very obvious that these you know these men have homoerotic overtones um but at the same time these are the kinds of movies that may have been damaging to young closeted gays what would you say about that i took a more i kind of took a more positive approach to it which is that 
I mean, yeah, you know, I think that they could have, I think that, I think they're part of an overall sort of churchy kind of culture. And uh, particularly in the 1950s, you know, you were sort of part of that culture or you weren't considered American. I mean, it was like, there were no, um, nobody identified as a spiritual, but not religious back then. You know, you just sort of, you said you're a Catholic or you're a Protestant or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, I took a more positive view of that, which is like, you know, you're being told this is a biblical epic. And yet there is a camp subtext, there's a queer subtext and people are reading into that. And so they're actually somehow seeing themselves represented even though uh, it's it's in this yeah. ostensibly very Sunday school pageant kind of religious epic. I mean, you know, <laughs> Ben-Hur, I mean, that's the example we talked about in class. The fact that, you know, that Gore Vidal was a writer on Ben-Hur and that the, the way that he pitched the relationship between Ben-Hur and Masala was that they had been lovers when they were younger men. And then when they re-met, when they met up again, it was like this rapturous meeting uh, but they didn't tell charlton heston that that's what they were gonna do <laughs> uh, and manly charlton heston yeah and that, i mean that was how i got into beefcake stuff because i started looking through beefcake of the era and there were lots of references to ben-hur so i think somebody was looking at this and getting something camp allows you to kind of see those layers of things right and it allows you to see what's going on underneath and so it kind of gives you that special set of lenses where it's like, okay, yeah, this is this crazy, like, you know, biblical thing where like God is punishing sinners and whatever, but wow. Like it's, you know, in order to destroy the decadence of the ancient world, they first must portray the decadence of the ancient world. And uh, so you can find yourself within that decadence if you choose to. I want to um, take a moment to ask for our listeners who might not, be familiar with the term camp, uh, how, how you define it. I know Susan Sontag said in her notes on camp article, that's like unable to be defined, but yes. like broadly speaking as, as best you can. And um, beyond that also camp just being a very queer genre. What, why do you think that is like between what relationship does queer and especially like gay culture uh, have with camp? Yeah, I'm, I'm always at a little bit of a loss to like say what it is because it's a sensibility. You have to kind of, you have to kind of know it to see it. Um, but it's basically, it's, it's theatricality. It's kind of over the top performance. Uh, we associate it with drag a lot. Um, there's a lot of camp involved in drag. Um, it's sure. character. You know, when somebody's character is just, they are one thing and they are one thing in the extreme. You know, we think about um, people like, I don't know, Eartha Kitts or uh, or Marlena Dietrich or something like that. I mean, they just have this character that's just like intense and over the top. And that has a lot to do with camp. I think there's also an element of camp where there's something that's kind of hidden in plain sight. Mm -hmm. And so that works really well with sexuality because... You know, um, I'm not one of these people who says camp can only be a queer thing uh, yeah, because yeah. I look at Cecil B. DeMille and he was a practitioner and Busby Berkeley and these guys were both straight. Um, yet it's very obvious from watching their films kind of what they were hiding, <laughs> which had a lot to do had a lot to do with BDSM and some um, <laughs> in, in DeMille's case and in, in uh, um, Busby Berkeley's case. 
I'm not sure. I think he just really liked women's legs. I'm not. I'm not <laughs> sure. I like the direction you're going in um, uh, there, Richard, about how camp doesn't just have to be for queer folks, especially with those uh, straight directors you pointed out. Uh, you know, they may have had interests that they couldn't otherwise express besides right. doing these movies, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And, you know, straight people should also be allowed to express themselves. I'm not better. <laughs> <laughs> well, and the reason, the reason queer people are very good at camp is that, uh, obviously, because we have many times had to live double lives. And mm -hmm. we have had to have, be able to see the layers behind the culture really as an act of survival. Right. Yeah. Like you have to see that it's like, OK, this world that they're sending you, that they're telling you or showing you on television. And this was especially, you know, um, when culture was sort of more monocultural and you had three channels on television, um, the world that they're showing you is you have to be able to see through that yeah. and you have to be able to kind of send it up and parody it and say it can't really be that way. Uh, there has to be, you know. There had to be somebody in the Brady Bunch had to be gay and it turned out to be the dad, you know, mm -hmm. and, and so it's like, you know, there's it's it's more of it's kind of a, a way of, you know, making sense of the world and making yeah. sense of the world, particularly the way that people have to make sense. Of the world. I think that's a fascinating and beautiful description. I, I'm thinking uh, I think, think first of all, this is a good transition to horror stuff. So I want to get on that but um before i do that just like that kind of mono monoculturalism at that time and that's also the development of things like the hanky code which were things that were just mundane but yet hidden in plain sight that if you knew yeah. you knew it's like a subtext to to create culture within this kind of um homogenous overculture so i just think that so, so, so I just love how you're describing camp as like being part of that as well, which I love. Yeah. Um, I would say horror is also one of those genres. Um, and uh, a lot of people have strong feelings about horror one way or the other. But I, one of the things I love about it is horror can verge into camp very easily. There's a lot of queer subtext in horror and a lot of religious imagery in horror and also horror often is about kind of these hiding things in plain sight whether it is meant to be some sort of twist at the end or if it's just that that's kind of the nature of horror as a genre in particular so first of all uh before we dive too deeply into it like are you a horror fan it, uh if not uh what what is your relationship with horror all of those things yeah um so i would say i'm it's like, I'm not a fan, but there are horror films that I like. Uh, so I'm, I'm kind of the same way with musicals, which is really sad considering <laughs> how into camp I am. Um, it's like, I'm not a big musicals fan, but there are musicals that I like. Uh, so um, stuff that I like, people start singing and I'm like, oh God, no, please. <laughs> I love it. I know, I, I can't memorize lyrics. Yeah. It, yeah, there seems to be this expectation that when you're queer, you have to memorize lyrics. And I'm like, no, but I can quote the, I can, I can quote the Golden Girls to you. Chapter and verse. Yes. yes. So yeah. And, and speaking of camp, you know, I mean, they are uh, classic, classic camp practitioners. Um, but what was the thing? Oh, horror and camp. Where were we going with that? Well, um, you were saying that there were kind of more, 
horror films that you like than being a fan of the genre in particular. So right. I wonder what what some of those examples might be. So I mean, I I like Hitchcock films, um, and and I I mean you know just the incredible craft of his films, and and some of his films are are horror. I would say uh, some of them are more like what you might call like a thriller or a psychological thriller that kind. Of um, so I do like, I do like, um, I do like Hitchcock. Um, I'm see, I started getting into kind of particularly horror films that have a big camp following. Um, so things like Carrie and, yes. uh, and, you know, I wanted to watch cause I actually had never watched the exorcist before. And so that was the one I wanted to watch when we were talking about doing this, doing this podcast. Um, I was like, I, I was watching, uh, another gay movie. I don't know if you if you all have seen that. Yes, I have. Oh my goodness! And uh, it's this parody of American. Have you seen it, Joe? Oh well, you got to watch it. Uh, it's a parody of um, the American Pie movies, yep, yep. only done from a gay male perspective. And uh, so there's a scene in there where they. That sounds sexy. It it is actually it, it is a very it's it is. Um, but there's a scene in there where they do a parody of Carrie. And um, only what gets dumped on his head is not blood, but something white. Yes. And, and, <laughs> is it is it hair gel? No, uh, I don't know what it is. But I went. It was funny watching Carrie and then watching that scene from another gay movie. It's like they they matched it shot for shot. The prom scene. I mean, it was like as close as possible on a small budget. And I remember I was watching that with my husband, Fred, who is from Singapore. And it's always fun figuring out from Fred, like what he knows about American culture and what he doesn't. And so when we were sitting there watching that, like, why is this in here? You know, like, why is Carrie associated with gay film? And it's like, so then I had to kind of go into this whole explanation about why Carrie was a gay film. And when there are no gays in it, um, it's just about Sissy Spacek and, um, you know, being, being, um, you know, uh, abused by her horribly religious mother and then being bullied at school and menstruating. So, I mean, it's basically the whole, whole thing. And yet somehow gay men have like taken that clutched it in their bosom and like, yes, this is my life. Somehow this is my life. So, um, I mean, yeah, I love, I love campy horror. Yeah. I think there's also just this weird fascination with campy overbearing mothers that show up in yeah. Carrie from and mommy dearest of course is the one everyone tends to think of when we talk about yeah this kind of subgenre within queer camp but so so like I, I wonder what's there like what what about that is campy if you have any thoughts on that maybe you don't but I don't know. I mean, I generally have a good relationship with my mother, so I don't understand <laughs> exactly. Right, right. That's wonderful, Richard. <laughs> no, well, I'm very happy. You know, it's like I, I it's nice. But anyway, um, the you know, I do think there might be a little bit of that. Uh, I do know gay men that have had very fraught relationships with their mothers, and I think that that's a, um, it could be a little bit of that. Maybe, you know, there's always the mother-daughter conflicts when the daughter grows up and the mother is like, you know, and they go at it. I wonder if that's a bit of like the mother-daughter conflict, except it happens with the gay son. I'm, yeah. I don't know. Well, to, to, to your earlier point about how, you know, surprised you were that Carrie is 
you know, part of the uh, gay field of experience. Uh, It's funny to me because uh, Sissy Spacek, you know, later becomes one of those gals, one of those leading ladies that gay men will want to go see a movie for, you know, like, you know, you'll want to, you put her name with Cher, Bette Midler. uh, And I, I suppose it's that, that concept of someone in a in an adverse situation who finds strength and empowerment and god knows women are always being placed in adverse situations it's that combination of strength and vulnerability i think that's always a winning formula and uh yeah so i mean that's why we loved judy that's why we loved you know um you know but but in a different way kind of like somebody like joan crawford or betty davis who can just like like read read you read you to filth basically and um so yeah i i think that we also go for those you know vulnerable kind of timid uh characters who are women who have to sort of fight back against a, a society that you know puts them down mm-hmm. yeah so much of it so much of that is is just uh uh uh, reflected in in the queer experience and to your point about Joan Crawford um, there are, I'm sure there are queers out there like me who uh, you know look at mommy dearest and say I wish I could be that outwardly bitchy sometimes yeah. to the general general public but Absolutely. you know that's I, I that's not who I am right. yeah and 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 you know that's that outlet it's yeah. like an extension of who your ideal self would want to be one of the things like the exorcist I, we should get into the exorcist since you watch a little bit uh recently but like one of the things i think is very queer and campy about that movie is the especially for the time that when the film came out in the 70s it blew everyone's expectations away of what could be in a film as far as sexual violence as far as blood as far as gore and as far as making explicit connections between christianity and that Mm -hmm. um in a way that hadn't really been done before and only sparingly has been done since i think in a mainstream movie so yeah so um um we were talking about my uh about my former advisor or my (laughs) He was my advisor, my late advisor, um, uh, Father Michael Morris, and he would always do a section in his film class on horror. And uh, and he would talk about The Exorcist and he would talk about um, all of these films. And uh, and he, I think he would show uh, maybe the the Amityville Horror or something like that um, as as part of his class. And, and so the whole thing was that, you know, for him and... and I, I could get this is that it you really can't have supernatural horror without some kind of religious or spiritual structure there. Yeah, like you yeah. have to be referring to some religion's mythology of of evil or of you know the things you're not supposed to do. Um, and it may not be Christianity, it could be lots of different religions that have that. But you you know, supernatural horror in you know innately gets into issues of of spirituality of religion of that those questions of transcendence and whether or not you know there's something else out there so yeah absolutely uh well i the i was just going to say earlier that as a as a cradle catholic uh i 
I watched The Exorcist as a kid and then again as an adult. And I always felt comfortable in that movie, which is a strange thing to say. Um, but I guess I guess what I'm trying to articulate is that it never exploits Catholicism. Uh, I feel like The Exorcist is a movie that says, well, if a demon possession were to happen in the real world of Catholics, this is exactly how it would go. And I, I totally believe that. And I love that about that first Exorcist movie. It's not exploitative. Like, I mean, we all know, you know, that the demon possession stuff is what gets all the attention. But The Exorcist is a surprisingly contemplative movie as as pace can attest to when they were commenting i didn't realize that this theme this scene was so long yeah but <laughs> something else i want to quick say say to a point that you made earlier richard about campus the hiding in plain sight thing mm -hmm. uh what is the name of the author william blatty william is that blatty. the author of the yeah. exorcist lady um like he also wrote the screenplay for it. And so it's like you, you say it's very the way it treats Catholicism in this very like austere way. And on the one hand, but then through using the demon, he can be very, very sacrilegious um, and create these images. Like there's one image of Mary where a statue of Mary, where the statue has been um, vandalized. And so to be able to vandalize through somebody else, through camp, through art, to make a statement about religion while still under the overall presentation of this is a very respectful um, interpretation of the church, I think is one of the things that makes the exorcist so campy and great is that it has the ability to be both things. Yeah. To be both camp, camp and horror. To be both religious and sacrilegious at the same time. That's a really that's a really amazing feat that I think that something like horror as well as camp are the necessary vehicles for that to okay. happen. Yeah. Yes, I was going to bring out my book, which you can find on Amazon.com. Just simply look for... I'm sorry. Anyway, go on. Um, so... Uh, <laughs> I was uh, no, I was saying I have a chapter in there where I compare um, the religious or the horror tropes in the Passion of the Christ with um, and and talk about what does horror mean for camp interpretation, and so uh, you know, I found that uh, I, basically when you're talking about queerness and when you're talking about horror, is you're talking about uh, talking about bodies that are unruly. Uh, you're talking about bodies that don't fit within what, um, within what society or what within what religious institutions say that they're supposed to do, and so when you have um, when you have, you know, what happens with Reagan in the in the film, um, she basically has. There's two ways I would read her body as being unruly. Um, that besides the demon possession, uh, one would be. Um, that she is of an age where she is reaching adolescence. And I, this is a weird thing that I started noticing is that in a lot of these horror films, the girls are right at like a writer, right on age 12. And so, and that's an age at which they're going to reach adolescence. They're going to pass from girlhood to womanhood and they're going to start menstruating. And so, and there's going to be blood involved in that. 
and that that's something that people make um, that these male writers and and uh, the ones who write the books and the ones who write the films, it's very taboo. It's almost being treated like a taboo subject. And so it's a major theme. And I think in The Exorcist, it's a major theme in, in Carrie. Um, I, you know, wrote the article that talked about, about Pan's Labyrinth, where I think that's going on. And then also um, um, The Witch, I think that's going on, uh, which is a, a horror movie that I love. Uh, mm -hmm. So that's one that I can add to my list. And so I think, you know, the other way that Reagan's body is, you know, I mean, her body has become blasphemous. You know, the way that she is using her body and the way she's she's um, basically, she's become basically like this, something that's horrible in the sight of God. And so it is the, it is the, first they try to fix that through medicine, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, there's the whole first part of the movie is all about like, she's going to doctor after doctor. Um, they put her on Ritalin. I think that's very interesting. Uh, I didn't know they were putting kids on Ritalin back in the 70s, but apparently right. it's been going on for a long time. Uh, and then there's like, there's lots of body horror around the medical tests that they're doing to her. And then, and then she starts getting more, worse and worse and more and more blasphemous and whatever. And so then it sort of goes from one patriarchal institution, which is all these male doctors, to this other patriarchal institution, which is the Catholic Church. Um, but either way, it is up to men to get her, put her back in the box, yeah. you know, and get her to start behaving like a little, a nice little lady again. And, and I mean, there's something very, um, in some ways, very disturbing about that uh, in their reaction to it. It's like, there's no question, there's no real questioning about like, you know, does this quote unquote demon that we're seeing in Reagan have anything to tell us or anything that we need to, you know, we're just assuming this is a bad thing and we're going to try to kill it and get rid of it. Yeah. And very interesting to your point, I think is how the slow build, one of the things that helps raise the suspense of the movie and really kind of take a very slow pace to getting to the point is Reagan's first present, presentations of the demon are all her acting in ways that are mildly unladylike enough for her mom to notice but think it's just oh she's puberty or oh something happening then it keeps progressively getting more and more severe like her peeing on the carpet is one scene and stuff like that and that to the point where she's actually like vomiting split pea soup and all that towards the end right but. yes yes and <laughs> and uh using very very questionable sexual aids uh, yes. <laughs> yeah, there's uh, there's uh, one thing I wanted to that I wanted to bring up if I could just change gears just a little bit uh, here uh, and to probably be stereotypically gay ma male about this because I want to move on to Ellen Burstyn. <laughs> you know, leave it to me, right? The queen in the group to switch over to the... Um, <laughs> To the leading lady, <laughs> uh, I, and I know that uh, that Ra the Reagan's character is definitely the centerpiece of this movie, and there's a lot to deconstruct from that character. But I wanted to to pick both of your brains, Pace and Richard, about um, what the mother is such an interesting character. First of all, um, she has a first name that's 
traditionally associated with males. Her name is Chris McNeil. Um, and so she's also an actress, uh, which I thought was an interesting occupation to give the mother. And at first, you, you, the audience might wonder, you know, oh, she's an actress. So what is she like as a mother? Is she an authentic mother or is this another role she's playing? But I would all, I would argue that uh, well, uh, the way it was written and maybe the way Ellen Bernstein, Bernstein plays, uh, plays that role, she really differentiates between the two. Uh, I really bought her as a concerned mother. I bought her as an involved mother. Um, but her actress side would also come out every so often, especially when she spoke to her underlings. She wasn't very dramatic about it, but there was a tone there, you know, where she was clearly expressing uh, who's the boss. <laughs> um, but like what there's what kinds of meanings, if any, can you derive from the mother character? Because she's clearly just the regular person in the movie, right? Like in Buffy the Vampire Slayer, you know, uh, Buffy is the superhero, but she also has these human friends and they're just there to, you know, be a surrogate for the audience and just to deal with this extraordinary problem in a very human way. And I think that's what um, Chris McNeil is doing. And, and I would be remiss to, uh, not point th to not point this out, but she she's a single mother. So, um, any reflections on Chris? I have a few, but I I well, let me just quick go, and then I want to hear Richard um, as the expert to tell me if either of these have any track or not. I think <laughs> I'm not grading anything here, <laughs> <laughs> but it's this this movie came out in the early seventies. Ronald Reagan, the kid's name is Reagan, but an actor uh, as governor uh, of California as this movie came out. And California was the first state to enact a no-fault divorce law in 1970. Cool. And so we have a single mother with the unruly child and having to turn to these patriarchal institutions of church and medicine to help get the child back to being raised appropriately. Um, in a very ladylike like way. So I feel like there is there is something being said about, I, I don't know how intentional, of course, intentionality does the author exist, all that stuff we argue about endlessly in the first season. But um, like, regardless of intentionality, I think there's something there that's some sort of statement in the early era, era of non-fault divorce of what consequences of that could be. Um, yeah, I... I think you're right on target. Uh, I think there's something about this, you know, at the beginning of the film, she seems very much more in charge of things. And she kind of like, you know, she shows up on the set and she's almost kind of like running the show. Like they're always, you know, like the, the, um, the director is kind of old and drunk as best I can tell. Like he's kind of, really very in charge and then then what's interesting is that she's doing a crowd scene where she's trying to talk down a bunch of student protesters so you know that's very interesting i don't know what that had to do with the whole thing so so i think that um i found her getting less and less powerful as the film went on and i found her spending a lot of time like by the end of the film i felt like she was just getting everybody coffee 
I was like, what, what is the obsession with coffee with this woman? I mean, you know, she was like, the detective comes in and it's like, can I get you some more coffee? And then, uh, and then the, the priest comes in and, and is like, I'll just get you some coffee. And then she sits down and kneels on the floor and lights a fire in the fireplace. Like, you know, let's make this, let's make this exorcism comfortable for everybody here. And it's just like, you know, it's weird. It's like she becomes more and more of a housewife, a traditional housewife as the film goes on and really kind of um, at the mercy of these forces, you know, whether it's the evil forces or whether it's the patriarchal forces that are supposed to fight the evil forces. That's, that's a really interesting perspective. And I'm wondering how that's all going to play out uh, in the coming trilogy, I don't know if you heard about this, Richard, but Ellen Burstyn has been signed to do a, a three-movie revival of The Exorcist for the streaming network Peacock. You know, some things should just be left alone. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's, it's a classic. You know, we don't need to revisit everything. I mean, one, one of the things that's wonderful going back and watching this film is that the effects were shot on the camera. Mm-hmm. It was done in, you know, the effects are what you call practical effects. Um, when you see that head spinning around, that's really a head spinning around, although not a human head spinning around. And, you know, it's like, it's, they had to do it using camera effects. And I think CGI would ruin a film like this. Absolutely mm-hmm. ruin it. I do not want to see the CGI version of this film. Um, it's just to, it's what they achieve is at the height of pre-computer special effects. And I don't want, and I know they're, you know, they, they do look fake at times and they do mm-hmm. look uh, weird to us, but that's part of the charm of this film. And yeah. so I don't want to see a different version. I really don't. I think that's interesting that, Joe and I kind of, um, in picking out movies for the podcast, we tend to pick out films from really the last great hurrah of practical effects in the early Mm -hmm. to mid-80s. It tends to be where we get a lot of our slasher films that we're going through those genres right now. So I do think there's something to be said about that. Yeah. Yeah. Remember... Remember when we got to the one Halloween movie where Michael Myers' mask was CG and it looked absolutely frightful in all the wrong ways? Yep, an H2O. Yeah, <laughs> and this yeah is all... you know, a mask should be a mask. Right. This is all Rick Baker. I mean, like, Rick Baker was one of the... Uh, he was an assistant in the makeup department for um, The Exorcist, I believe. And, and this is him. You know, he became the master of movie makeup and horror makeup Mm -hmm. and you know whoever was whoever was doing the makeup was the old master i can't remember what his name was but um it's like you know and and friedkin knows how to make a movie i mean it's like you know there's so many of the things that uh, my impression watching it was it's like oh well that's where this comes from oh so that's where this comes from oh so that's where this comes from um because the the things that friedkin does in a film end up getting adapted and getting used by multiple directors afterwards you know whether it was the the car chase and the french connection you know every car chase since then has basically been the car chase from the french connection redone Mm -hmm. and so 
there's so much stuff. And then of course, the greatest horror film of all time, which I love, is uh, The Boys in the Band, which Friedkin also <laughs> filmed. And <laughs> I love it. Did you just call that the greatest horror film of all time? It is the greatest horror film of all time. I mean, come on. Think about it, Joseph. Think about it. How I, many I guess so. Have you been in where it's like, it's just a bunch of like, let's say queer people, but especially gay men and they're getting drunker. Especially and, gay men. And it's like, yes. I mean, my uh, one of my partners and I had a rule that it was like, you must invite lesbians to any party that you have because you cannot just have a group of gay men sitting around because <laughs> eventually it'll be like some kind of horrible game where they're like, okay, call the person that you loved back in high school or something like that. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah. Well, yeah, it, it, it is gay horror because yeah. it is gay horror because <laughs> the dinner party spirals out of control and then the birthday boy is having trouble with aging. Oh, oh, all the horrors of being gay right there. <laughs> He's very much the monster. Well, he and he and Michael, are the monsters of that film, you know? And it's like, mm -hmm. you think when he comes in, he's going to be the re the really big bad monster. You realize it's Michael by the end of the film. He's, he's pretty much the Wicked Witch. They sort of throw water on him by the end of the film. Right. Uh, I, I have a confession to make. I never saw the original. I only saw the Netflix remake and I liked it. The Netflix remake is a very good, you know, kind of... Um, Re remake of the original. The original has the same kind of spirit. Yeah, I have not seen the remake, but I have seen the original. But it's been ages. Yeah, uh, I think we should um, re revisit that film maybe for season three and have Richard come back <laughs> and treat it as a horror film. Um, so uh, this this podcast is basically continuing in perpetuity. So. <laughs> Yeah. Richard, when you're a thousand years old and you're having trouble dealing with being an old queen, we want you to come back. I'm not, this is not going to take a thousand years for me to have that problem, but yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes, aging the real horror. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, we have one last question for you that um, we, is kind of the question we ask all of our guests. Uh, we, part of our, uh, podcast we have our regular episodes where we talk about horror movies but then we have mini episodes where we talk about uh real life horror stories involving the church um oftentimes people treating other people horribly so uh but mm -hmm. some people even have supernatural stories that happen in the church so do you have any real life church horror stories that you're comfortable sharing yeah and it's related to the to the exorcist and it's really interesting that this was what kind of came up um because i've been thinking about it a lot lately um, I, you know, I grew up in a very kind of, you know, pretty staid, pretty middle class, working class Presbyterian church. And uh, but at some, at, you know, as this was, again, part of the Jesus people thing was that there was a charismatic movement that came along in the 70s and 80s. And um, this was where you started having churches that had not traditionally been, uh, say, uh, involved in like, say, Pentecostalism or something like that who that started having things like faith healing and um, beliefs in like what they called the fruits of the spirit and that kind of thing. And, uh, and it happened, you know, it happened in Catholic churches. It happened in like Lutheran churches. It happened in like just all kinds of like, just kind of what used to be very mainline um, denominations. 
And so we, uh, my parents got involved in it somewhat and our church got involved in it and they brought in these faith healers um, named Bill and Dolores Winder. And Dolores Winder was one of a protege of Catherine Kuhlman, who was the major uh, like healer, you know, uh, of the 1970s. She sort of took that kind of carnival tent you know, carnival tent healing thing and, you know, adapted it for the TV era. And uh, and Dolores Winder was one of her success stories because supposedly Dolores Winder was on the verge of death and had had all kinds of these back problems and couldn't move anymore. And then Catherine Kuhlman healed her. So um, so they show up at our church and they do what must have been like a three day like revival. Um, and I was about 10 years old. And the thing was, you know, I mean, it's one thing to talk about like faith healing or talk about praying for people or whatever. And, you know, I don't, I don't have any problem with that. Um, but what they introduced was this idea of spiritual warfare and this idea that you're supposed to, you're doing battle with the devil every day. And that if there's something, if there's, if there's something bad happening in your life, it's kind of your fault because either, either you are not praying hard enough and trying to stop that from happening. And you're supposed to bind the devil. And it's very much like what they do in the film. You know, the power of Christ compels you. Uh, you wouldn't use that, those words exactly, but you're very much binding the devil. Um, or there's some <laughs> occasion of sin in your life in which is causing you to be tempted or by the devil. Uh, in, the, in The Exorcist, there's this moment where she's playing with a Ouija board. And it's oh, yeah. almost like that is the moment in which this spirit, this kind of demonic spirit gets introduced to her. And, oh, and so, and this is in the eighties, I'm 10 years old. The satanic panic is everywhere. Um, people are, you know, freaking out mm -hmm. about supposed, you know, satanic influences in the culture. Um, and, you know, I look back on that and I realize that did me a lot of damage. Uh, it really, I think if there was a period in my life where I started to um, internalize homophobia and get a sense that there was something wrong with me uh, because I was uh, because I was a gay kid, um, I think it was then that that started happening. Mm, yeah, yeah. And I, you know, and wow. I realize it's like, and I, I think about why do I have anxiety? You know, why do I have anxiety disorders that I've dealt with in my life? And I just think so much of it goes back to this because well, as a 10 year old, you were told that you're doing battle with the source of all evil and that the kind of very average problems of your life are something that you have to uh, be responsible for in a kind of cosmic way. And that's a horrible message to give to kids. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Um, it's a horrible message. That's a lot of pressure. Yeah. So it was interesting that I'd been thinking about this a lot. And then, and then, and then when I watched um, The Exorcist, it was like, oh my God, this is like, <laughs> this is exactly, um, and, and leave it to Protestantism, you know, cause like, cause like Catholics would look at this and say, oh, there's a demon possession. <laughs> Let's get a priest, you know, and the priest would have, the priest would have the, the tools, you know, to work with. They'd have the, the prayer book and they'd have the holy water and they'd have the whatever. But leave it to Protestants to democratize that. Yeah. <laughs> and to say that, no, you too can do battle with the devil. You don't need a priest to do battle with the devil for you. So, yeah, I mean, I think 
uh, it was the wrong message. And, and I'm really glad that my church got away from that. And, uh, cause I would have been much worse if, um, if, you know, we got some new leadership in the church and they kind of just put a stop to it and they said, we're not doing this anymore. And so, um, I don't know. I, and I, when I think that there's so many young people that grow up with this, you know, that grow up with this as a basic part of their lives, mm -hmm. uh, it's just horrifying. Yeah. That's horrifying. That's a, that's a horror show right there. Definitely. Um, th I have a similar experience in that when I, I saw the exorcist probably for the first time when I was nine or 10 and it's a l little young. And, um, I remember enjoying the movie, knowing it was like make believe, on the sense but then also getting this very real fear from being a kid in church that the devil was going to possess me next so mm -hmm. i asked my mom like who was a pastor i said how how did reagan get possessed like how does that happen and can that happen in real life and she said um oh you just have to invite the devil into you and that's how it happens and so i would have panic attacks staying up to like 3 a.m at night like rocking my bed for weeks after being like i don't want satan inside me i don't want to accidentally say it in my sleep i don't want mm. anything like that to happen and just being stuck yeah. in that state of fear for so long you know yeah so it's a real thing and um often how that healing also goes into things like conversion therapy and stuff for queer people to mm -hmm. heal you of your gayness or queerness it's yeah. just absolutely gross and real life horror like you were saying I, I did not have the spiritual warfare aspect in my my childhood. As I said, I, I'm, a, I'm a cradle Catholic. However, um, around the same time as you, Pace, so I was about nine or ten, and Richard, I may have shared this at, in class at one point, my mom went into this weird fundamentalist Christian phase. <laughs> so in place of the spiritual warfare thing, uh, the spiritual warfare trauma that you, uh, Richard and Pace, had to endure. I got end times trauma. Literally, um, every Bible study and every prayer group that I was in, uh, I was part of in that fundamentalist Christian set, I suppose, we would end, we would close the group by praying to God if tonight is the night that you take us, we want to be the ones to be oh. in the rapture. Oh and God. so between the ages of nine and 11, I was constantly on the lookout for the end of the world and hoping that I was good enough for God to rescue me when that happens. Yeah. That's, that's pretty horrifying. <laughs> that's for awful. sure. <laughs> we, we, Oh man, we went. We all went through some stuff with this Christianity thing, huh? Why are we still here? Like, why are we still? <laughs> why are we still part of a church <laughs> or Christianity? Right? I mean, it's question. like, <laughs> yeah, it's a question we definitely uh, get asked all the time. Yep. Pace, did you did you have any more uh, any more questions yep. you wanted to throw at uh, Richard? No, I think we're just about at time. So I want to ask, um, you already mentioned your book, but please feel free to promote it again and what other projects you ha might have going on. And yeah. also if you have any social media handles or anything you might want people to follow, anything like that. Um, yeah, I, I'm I'm not good at social media. I'm, I'm a Gen Xer and I'm just like, this was, a, a, this was all a generation behind <laughs> me. And so um, I'm like, just 
call me on the phone, you know, but <laughs> I'm not going to give out my phone number. So yeah. um, I guess uh, the, the one thing that, so the book is Hollywood Biblical Epics. If you just look up Richard Lindsay, L-I-N-D-S-A-Y and Bi Hollywood Biblical Epics, you can find it. Uh, and it is an academic book, so it costs like 50 bucks or whatever. But um, or look, if, you, if you're somebody who has access to like a good theological library, hopefully it'll be there. Um, and I think it's a I think it's a great read um, for not just for, you know, people who are, um, you know, there's some theory in there and stuff like that. It's a dissertation. You got to do that. But I think it's very readable. And I think it's readable for people who are just film fans and people who like those movies or have a lot of experience with those those biblical epic films. So, and it might get some suggestions for films to watch that you might not have even thought about. And then the other thing is um, I'm a co-editor of poptheology.com. And that is a site that is, was founded by Ryan Parker, my, who's part of my PhD cohort. And uh, we, you know, we go through periods where we post a lot of stuff on there and we go through periods where we don't post a lot of stuff on there. I think right now my review for Love, Victor is still the top of the list. And that was like a month and a half ago. And uh, so, um, yeah, but I think we're going to have some good stuff coming up with there is this remake uh, of The Eyes of Tammy Faye. The documentary is going to be remade as a drama oh, wow. uh, starring Jessica Chastain. Yes, with Jessica Chastain and Andrew Garfield. Uh, Jerry Falwell is being played by Vincent D'Onofrio, which I think is the best <laughs> casting ever. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, my. I, I apologize to Matt, our editor, because I am just screaming right I now. I, I did not know such a project exist. Really? Vincent D'Onofrio is Jerry Falwell? <laughs> I can totally see it, though. I'm so looking forward to this. I'm excited. I wonder if we should cover that on the podcast. <laughs> it's going to be a big, uh, I mean, you know, I think it's going to be their big award season push and stuff like that. So um, I, I hopefully I'm going to get to see a screener of the film. Hopefully I'm going to get to do a review of the film, maybe even interview some people mm -hmm. involved in the film. Um, so that'll all depend on the mm -hmm. timing and stuff like that. But um, so hopefully we'll have some stuff on poptheology.com coming up in the next couple weeks with that, that, will have some cool stuff and meanwhile mm -hmm. well, you can read my review of love victor which is interesting so <laughs> and and uh and speaking of satanic panic i also mm -hmm. really enjoyed writing up about little Na little nas x and what he's done i was just like wow um he is a genius manipulator of the media and i love him and so um, um and so yeah. campy too in the and best so way campy. i love it He's like, I mean, somehow he just feels it in his bones because he is not old enough to know half the things he's referencing or, right. you know, he's got people. I know he's got people who are working with him, but I mean, it's like he just does it. And uh, yeah, I mean, he's only like 23. So, yeah, he's he's great. But yeah, that's poptheology.com. And I have a ton of reviews on there. Lots and lots of stuff going back like oh, 10 cool. years. So um, just do a search for me and, and you can for Richard Lindsay. Were you going to ask me about Mary Fuck Kill? Yes. <laughs> Mary Fuck Kill. Um, we picked the three big slashers, but if you're not a horror, you can swap them out for anybody you're more familiar with. But Jason Voorhees, Freddy Krueger, Michael Myers. So I, being someone who's like a little more into like um, 
into Hitchcock and some classic stuff, um, I sort of, I, I kind of inch this around a little bit. And so what I'm saying in terms of Mary is um, I'm going to say um, Tippi Hedren in The Birds Ooh. because she is so fabulous. It's, it's sort of a Mary slash want to be her kind of thing. Yes. Um, because she is like, she's, I mean, she's in Bodega Bay on, on like this fishing trawler and she's wearing a tweed suit and pumps and gloves and a hat and she looks fabulous. And it's like, she comes out of, at the beginning of that film, she's in a pet store and she comes out of the pet store. It's supposed to be in downtown San Francisco and somebody whistles at her and she's, she doesn't get offended or anything. She just looks like, yeah, I know. I mean, she's just like, she's fabulous. She's so well put together. And then, and then uh, for fuck, I would, it would be Norman Bates. Yeah, we watched Psycho for season one of the podcast. I have to agree with you. Oh my I, god! It had been a while since I'd seen Psycho, and I remember when we screen when I screened it with Pace. I said, "Did did Norman always look this cute? What's going on?" He was always cute, and and um, Tony Perkins was gay, although not a very uh, kind of a self loathing gay. Mm. And uh, but he's fen- he's kind of at the height of his powers in Psycho. And then for Kill, what I realized is that if I was going to survive that interaction with Norman Bates, I would probably have to kill his mother. Yes. So it's like, I would have to take the knife with me into the shower and there would be no way of others surviving that unless we killed the mother. I'm dying. I love it. That the best. So, yeah. <laughs> Arm yourself when you get into the shower. Exactly. <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> well, once again, thank you so much. That's it for our show. Our theme music was by Matt May, who also edited this episode. Horror Nerds at Church releases every Thursday. Please comment, rate, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on social media, Facebook and Instagram at Horror Nerds at Church, and Twitter at HNACpod for all the latest updates about upcoming films, news, and other announcements. Until next time, if you're watching a movie about a young woman and it's a horror movie going through puberty it's probably a metaphor for menstruation (laughs) indeed